Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Like many of you, I'm sure I've been uh, watching and reading um, and thinking a lot about the war in Ukraine. Um, we see horrible images on the news. Uh, we hear uh, courageous stories. I also find I carry a lot of dread with me about what is still yet to come. And I wonder, I wonder what I would do if I was in Ukraine as a husband, a father, a pastor, a neighbor. And I wonder what I should do as a Christian, as a Mennonite, as a pacifist in America. In a lot of ways, uh, Vladimir Putin has made it easy. He is such an obvious and unambiguously bad guy that he makes everyone else look good. And so it's easy to know who to back and who to hate. But war is about more than uh, just determining which side to support and which side to seek to destroy. It's not just about whether we're on one side or the other in a war, but whether we're on the side of war itself. It's not just whether we're on one side or the other side is right, but it's a question of whether war itself can ever make us right. And so at its core, war forces us to ask the question, which God do we serve? Which God do we worship? Which God do we trust? The gods of war or the God of peace? Here's what I mean. War isn't just about troops and weapons and generals and geopolitical strategies, though that certainly is part of it. War, whether it's the kind of ground invasion that we're watching now in Ukraine or uh, the Cold War that many of us remember as kids, the doomsday clock ticking ever closer to midnight, uh, the duck and cover drills in our elementary schools in case there's a nuclear attack, or whether it's just preparing and sustaining a military for war, war has a way of taking on a life of its own. War is more than the sum of the parts. War becomes its own force. And I don't mean just military force or political or economic or social force, but spiritual force. War has a spirit to it. And the ancients understood this. The ancients had gods of war. In fact, if you do the uh, crossword puzzle much, you probably know that the four-letter answer to the clue Greek god of war is? It's Ares, yeah. And the four-letter answer to the question the Roman god of war is Mars. And it's not just that these pre-moderns had their simplistic notions of you know, mythic deities duking it out up in the heavens. They understood that war acts like a god. War makes demands like a god. Like a god, war demands everything. It demands our loyalty, it demands our money, and it demands our lives. Now, you know, all these centuries later, we don't use that mythic language much anymore. We're too reasonable, we're too rational, although I'm less and less convinced about how reasonable and rational we really are. But isn't that, that kind of God of war language, isn't that what Dwight Eisenhower, and Dwight Eisenhower was one of the most decorated soldiers in the history of this uh, country, isn't that what he warned us about 
at his, um, in, in the uh, farewell address at the end of his second term as president, he warned about the military industrial complex. He actually called it the military industrial congressional complex. And he warned that that relationship, military industry and politics could take on a life of its own. And once it's created, it becomes very hard to control. And he was right. There was an article in the paper not that long ago about Congress approving a budget for the military that was much larger than the Department of Defense asked for itself. And so war, and not just war, but institutions and systems and structures can take on a life, a mind, um, a spirit of their own that's more than just the sum of the parts. That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 4. That's what Paul was writing about in Ephesians 4 when he wrote about the principalities and the powers. He's writing of the struggle between the powers, the gods like war, and the God and the gospel of peace. So uh, let me just read a short bit from Ephesians. This is, um, excuse me, I said Ephesians 4, but it's Ephesians 6. So Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, heavenly places. And again, it's sort of easy for us to dismiss that kind of language as if Paul's imagining the devil with a pitchfork up in the sky. But it's a mistake to dismiss Paul's warning about powers, about the power that institutions and systems like war take on. And what sustains war, and this is true whatever side of a war you might be on, what sustains war is, is the myth of redemptive violence. That's a phrase that I've used before. It's a phrase that comes from Walter Wink, who is a, a Lutheran theologian. And, and parenthetically, you know, when we hear myth, uh, most often in our culture it's defined as, as, as a falsehood or a lie, but that's not really what myth is. Myths are those really deep stories that help make sense of reality. And this myth runs throughout history, this myth of redemptive violence. It's the myth that good, that order, that peace can only come through violence. And it's a myth that runs through the history of this country, way back to the origin story of the United, what became the United States. We wouldn't be a free country if those early colonists, coloni colonialists, if the founding fathers hadn't fought crazy King George for freedom, right? Uh, we wouldn't still have a country if we hadn't fought the Civil War. Our country was endangered if we hadn't fought Hitler and the Axis powers. Our country was under threat unless we were going to go into Afghanistan to fight. It's the myth that redemption only comes through violence. There are times you've got to draw a line in the sand. There are times you have to stand up and fight for what you believe in. And that myth is so powerful uh, for two reasons. First of all, it's powerful because most of us, most of the time, are not even aware of it. It's just sort of baked into the stories that we take for granted. And so we assume that it's just the nature of reality. And the second reason it's so powerful is that almost everyone believes it. Putin believes it. Belinsky believes it. NATO believes it. China believes it. Republicans believe it. Democrats believe it. Most Christians believe it. What you end up with is one domination system, that's another Walter Wink term, 
uh, one country or a coalition with their military, industrial, political power vying with another domination system with their military, industrial, political power. And, and to be clear, it's not that there are no distinctions in war. I mean, Putin is clearly the aggressor in Ukraine. But violence, as a response to violence, can always and only create more violence. Evil cannot be stopped using its own weapons. Martin Luther King famously said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, beginning the very thing it seeks to destroy. But the good news, the gospel news, is that Jesus embodied another way, a way that challenges this myth, a way that blunts the powers of the gods of war. And that's a part of the story that we've heard today from Luke chapter 13. This story in Luke, uh, uh, Luke 13 is the whole chapter, actually holds a lot of violence. It begins with, uh, with Pilate. We know Pilate from uh, Passion Week stories. Pilate was a Roman governor of Judea. And in the first part of chapter 13, we didn't hear this, um, there's a note about uh, Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. The Roman Empire that Pilate represented sustained itself through violence. And then in the story we just heard, Jesus is warned about Herod. Herod was a vassal. He was a kind of a puppet king installed by the Romans. Some Pharisees come to Jesus and they warn him, Herod, uh, get, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Herod had already killed John the Baptist. Initially, Herod was kind of intrigued with Jesus. But now Jesus is just more troubled than he's worth, and so he aims to kill him too. But Jesus... You know, and given that there's just been a death threat, I, I shouldn't find this funny, but this story always makes me smile because I imagine Jesus in response to this threat sort of scrolling through his calendar saying, go and tell that fox today. No, I'm casting out demons today. Tomorrow, nope, I'm going to be performing a lot of cures. The third day, I'm, another third day, I'm going to finish up and I'm taking off. It just strikes me as humorous because Jesus refuses to be drawn in by Herod's threat. Jesus refuses to be deterred from the work that he's been given to do. And what he's been given to do is the work of liberation. Here it's casting out demons, performing cures. Earlier, in Luke 4, he described it using the words of Isaiah as proclaiming re release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and letting the oppressed go free. And that work of liberation runs through the whole biblical story. In the Hebrew scriptures, and uh, the essential story in the Hebrew scriptures, or what we would call the Older Testament, is the story of Exodus, right? For 400 years, the people of Israel have been enslaved, and then God liberates them. God frees them from Egypt. And then later, the prophets have visions of people who've been freed from sin and exploitation and inequity. And now, in the Gospels, this work of liberation is embodied in Jesus. It's the myth of redemptive violence against domination systems that rely on the power of might and force and violence. Jesus embodies what he calls the kingdom of God, a kingdom, a community in which the poor are blessed and the hungry are fed and demons are exercised and people are healed and sins are forgiven. Jesus embodies the, the, the nonviolent, fearless, persistent love by which God means to redeem all of creation. Not the myth of redemptive violence, but the myth, the truth of redemptive love. 
Now, in the second part of the reading we heard earlier, uh, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Jesus laments over this ironically named city of Jerusalem, which in Hebrew means literally the city of peace, but a city that has rarely known peace. Throughout history, and, and still to this day, empires and conquerors and kings and crusades have passed through that narrow strip of land that holds Jerusalem, that strip bounded by the Mediterranean on one side and the River Jordan on the other. And here, Jesus laments the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And if you read on in the book of Luke, you know how the story goes. Soon enough, Jesus himself will be killed there. And the destructive deathliness of that kind of domination system will be on full display. But God raised Christ from the dead. And that's the hope of our faith, that the nonviolent, redemptive, selfless love of God is stronger, stronger than hatred, fear, violence, even death, strong enough to break the cycles of violence, strong enough to reconcile all things. Jesus embodies another way, another hope, another future. And so it presses us to answer the question, which story are you going to believe? Which myth are you going to trust? What kind of world do you think we live in? And which God are you going to serve? Which God are you going to worship? Ares? Mars? Or the God of Christ? The God of peace? And what does it mean to trust this God of peace as we watch, as we read, as we think about this war in Ukraine? What would I do if I was in Ukraine? I'd like to believe that my faith is strong enough to trust and worship and serve this God of peace, but honestly, I don't know what I would do. There are there's some very moving stories coming out of Ukraine. Just this week, uh, I and hope maybe many of you saw that video of a Ukrainian girl singing Let It Go, which I gather is from a very well-known film. Uh, but a girl singing Let It Go in a Kiev shelter it was heartwarming, and it was heartrending. There was a story I heard of a, of a grandmother who knocked a Russian drone out of the sky by throwing at it a bottle of pickled tomatoes. <laughs> I would like to think that I would have that kind of canny, wily, courageous, peacemaking imagination. And, yeah, and, and, and aim, too, that's right. But there are also other, other stories. I mean, mothers arming themselves with Kalashnikovs and grandmothers making Molotov cocktails. But whatever I believe at this distance, I can't judge others making choices that I will never have to face. So what would I do if I was in Ukraine? I don't know. But what should I do here? What should we do as Christians, as Mennonites, as pacifists? You know, in this cosmic struggle that Paul described in Ephesians 6, he calls us to take up the whole armor of God. Rather than weapons of war, he calls us to take up weapons of the Spirit. Let me read another little part from Ephesians 6. Therefore, Paul writes, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. 
Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Fasten the belt of truth around your waist. What should we do? Well, be truthful, for one thing. Be truthful about the war and be truthful about ourselves. As I said, Putin has made it pretty easy. But the thing is, when we demonize our enemies, then it's easy to overlook our culpability in the buildup to war and in the perpetuation of the cycles of war. Um, Ted Grimsrud, who's a professor of peace theology at Eastern Mennonite University, and who spoke here once, boy, it was a long time ago, probably 10 years ago now. He uh, posted an essay to his blog titled, uh, Thinking as an American Pacifist about uh, the Russian Invasion. By the way, um, we're making um, arrangements for Ted to be with us on April 10th for a question and answer, so we'll have more information about that soon. But in his essay, he makes the point that Russia didn't invade Ukraine in a complete vacuum, that since the end of the Soviet Union, uh, NATO has greatly expanded into Central and Eastern Europe. NATO has put weapons virtually on the doorstep of Russia. The thing is, when we rely on those systems of domination, when we rely on those threats of violence, we beget the very thing that we seek to destroy. And now this god of war is demanding more. Uh, last Sunday in the Times, Robert Gates, former secretary of the Department of Defense, wrote an essay insisting that we now have to upgrade all branches of the military. We need more planes, we need more ships, and we need more soldiers. We have to be truthful. And we have to be truthful about ourselves. I'm a pacifist. I find myself, as I read in the news, cheering the resistance. I also have to admit that uh, when a sitting US senator not that long ago said of Putin that somebody ought to take him out, I didn't instinctively uh, disagree. We have to be truthful. Because telling the truth reveals the logic of this myth of redemptive violence, that violence begets violence. If we're not aware of what's happening, we can easily turn into the thing we oppose. And so Nietzsche, German philosopher, is the one who said, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. Fasten the belt of truth around your waist. And then Paul goes on, put on the breastplate of righteousness, Shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all these, take, on, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How do we wield those weapons of the spirit? How do we bear witness to the gospel of peace? Well, here at Portland Mennonite Church, we often talk about praying for peace and acting for peace praying for the people of Ukraine, praying for the churches of Ukraine, praying for the refugees of Ukraine, for parents and doctors and teachers and shopkeepers and kids, and praying for leaders, praying for the leaders of Ukraine and Russia and NATO and this country. I have no illusion that they're gonna become pacifists, but they, they make a lot of choices. And so we pray that their hearts will turn away from violence and be bent toward peaceful resolution. Pray for peace and act for peace. Mennonite Central Committee has the Ukraine Emergency Response Fund. I think there's a link in the bulletin, and if not, you can find it at mcc.org. I encourage you to give. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be Ukrainian refugees and many other refugees coming to our communities. 
Open our hearts, open our city. Be supportive of those who will find their way to Portland. What would I do? What should we do? This war in Ukraine is a crossroad. Which way are we going to go? It's a season for turning, for turning, for getting ourselves oriented more and more toward the way that Jesus calls us to go. So what do we need to turn away from? How does the logic of redemptive violence tempt us? Are we trusting the gods of war more than the God of peace? And what are we being called to turn toward? How do we bear witness to the gospel of peace in a time of war? What can you do? Set with those questions for uh, in these next moments of silence. And then in a bit we'll join in singing Ubi Caritas et Amor, where charity and love are found. God is there. <laughs> 